What Mad Universe is part of the Tokyo Beat Podcast Network. Content warning. Nuclear war, genetic engineering, mind control, warlords, slavery, and Australians. Action! Excitement! Horror! Romance! Thrills and chills! Swords and sorcery! Rockets and ray guns! A dizzying panoply of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination. What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on What What Mad Universe. The story is simple. There was a boy who bought the planet Earth. We know that, to our cost. It only happened once, and we have taken pains that it will never happen again. He came to Earth, got what he wanted, and got away alive in a series of very remarkable adventures. That's the story. The place? That's Old North Australia. What other place could it be? Where else do the farmers pay 10 million credits for a handkerchief, 5 for a bottle of beer? Where else do people lead peaceful lives, untouched by militarism, on a world which is booby-trapped with death and things worse than death? Old North Australia has strewn the Santa Clara drug, and more than a thousand other plants clamor for it. But you can get strewn only from Australia. That's what they call it, for short. Because it's a virus that grows on enormous, gigantic, misshapen sheep. The sheep were taken from Earth to start a pastoral system. They ended up as the greatest of imaginable treasures. Then one of their kids showed up on Earth and bought it. The whole place, lock, stock, and under people. That was a real embarrassment for Earth. And for Australia too. If it had been the two governments, Australia would have collected all the eye teeth on Earth and sold them back at compound interest. That's the way Australians do business. Or they might have said, Skip it, Cobber. You can keep your old wet ball. We've got a nice dry world of our own. That's the temper they have. Unpredictable. But a kid had bought Earth, and it was his. Hey folks, it's What Mad Universe. As always, I'm Adam Prosser, and with me is Philip Rice. Hello, and I think that accent might have been a hate crime personally against uh, Douglas MacDonald Norman, friend of the show. <laughs> it's okay. Australians don't have feelings, as we all know. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, we are looking at Australia, the only novel by Cordwainer Smith, uh, who's a bit of a, an odd uh, outlier in science fiction. We'll be right back after this. Today's show is brought to you by Epos Gaming Audio. With a comprehensive lineup of both wired and wireless headsets, gaming amplifiers, microphones, and webcams, Epos has everything you need to experience the power of audio. Like their H6 Pro lineup, which features two versions, an open or closed headset, the closed headset allows you to tap into exceptionally detailed audio and seals out ambient noise, while the open version delivers natural high-fidelity audio with an incredible soundstage. Both headsets include a magnetic, detachable microphone and a sleek design that has no wild RGB configurations, just good design. Listeners can save by visiting www.eposaudio.com gaming and entering code EPOSFRIEND15 at checkout to save 15%. Hey everyone, it's David Petrangelo, one of your hosts from Remember 64, the podcast that goes on the totally tubular journey through the Nintendo 64's library. Join us as we dive into classics from Nintendo, Rare, and into the early days of polygons and 3D worlds. Yes, we're covering it all from top of the charts down to the dingy basement and everything in between. We may even find a few hidden gems. Ooh, intriguing. Remember 64, only on the Tokyo Beat Network. Okay, we're back. Um, so, uh, yeah, um, the novel is uh, Norstralia. As I said, it's the only full novel written by uh, Paul Myron Anthony Linebarger, who wrote under the pseudonym of Cordwainer Smith, and also Felix C. Forrest. Um, but uh, he's known for his science fiction as Cordwainer Smith. Um, and uh, 
as I said, it's his only novel, but he did write a whole series of short stories set in a shared universe called the Instrumentality Universe, uh, which is, I think, one of the earlier examples of this uh, in this exact format. Of course, you know, you had things like, um, uh, uh, you know, the the John Carter novels being sequels and so forth. But this was uh, sort of uh, different stories with different characters, but they're all set in a shared world that uh that that he keeps going back to with a shared with an ongoing developed history that he worked on uh that there's sort of that in the barsoom books because different books do follow other characters and of course the like pellucidar and and barsoom and um um the uh, amtor venus stories are all like in the same universe yeah oh yeah it's it had been that general idea had been done before but it was like it's an unusual example of i'm going to tell stories set at different points in a historical uh, a a, a historical line um but with different characters and it's like often thousands of years apart and it sort of builds a future history although it's not anything like a like a realistic you know, hard science fiction history. It's it's very strange and psychedelic. Um, and uh, writing stories with different characters, uh, many years and even thousands of years apart. That sounds terrible. I mean, I <laughs> I, I would never make a, a comic book like that. Or, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, it, it's it, like it seems very basic now, but it was. Uh, I will say, uh, Robert A. Heinlein's uh, short stories were initially he set them in a historical future timeline as well but um it's not as that's not as sort of strange and compelling as what uh, cordwain or smith did here um so uh smith was this very odd guy a very bizarre career um he uh, as i say his real name was paul byron anthony Linebarger. uh he was uh, his his uh, father was a judge in the philippines around uh uh just before World War One, he was born. Um, he was the godson of uh, Sun Yat-sen, who's known as the father of Chinese nationalism. Uh, he became, that is, uh, Cordwainer Smith became, uh, I'll call him Cordwainer Smith for simplicity's sake, uh, became the uh, confidant of Chiang Kai-shek, who was the cool. warlord who uh, fought the... Um, the, he fought the uh, Chinese communists and lost, obviously. Um, in the uh, that's he was the subject of a behind the bastards episode. So yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's uh, that's something I don't know a lot about the Chinese Revolution. But I mean, he was on the side of the, uh, uh, well, uh, I guess the imperial side, um, the non the non communist side. He was kind of the leader of that. Um, so uh, and then uh, later uh, Smith went on to uh, he worked for the CIA and he played a, a large role in uh, apparently developing forms of propaganda. Um, th- so, you know, and these are techniques that he clearly used in his uh, work. Basically, he does have a fascination with um, psychological control and sort of engineering um, societies and, and individuals as well. Um, so and he he had a strong understanding of Chinese culture, which uh, influenced his novels. It's generally believed, and I, I not having read a lot of Chinese fiction or any Chinese fiction, I can't sort of speak to this. But he has a very distinctive style, which is apparently heavily influenced by, uh, by the writings of Chinese, uh, Chinese fiction writers. Uh, I don't know if that's of the time or classically or whatever, but uh, yeah, there's there's certain uh, it, it certain has its, it certainly has a unique feel to all the uh, all the stories that he does. Um, in many ways, he'll uh, he'll skip over or uh, or or detach himself from major events. Uh, I'm I don't know if that's one of the things that makes it uh, unique in that way. Um, uh, you Phil, you so you read Norstralia and the Ballad of Lost Seamel, uh, right? Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I I quite like them, so it's it's a shame to find out that he was like a terrible person in real life. But <laughs> yeah, uh, he was kind of on the on the the side of the bad guys. Unfortunately, I mean he yeah. did. I I mean I don't know that he personally did anything that terrible, but uh, you know he was certainly um, um, you know is hanging a around with of some a warlord. <laughs> awful awful people. Yeah, exactly. Um, he was in that in that uh, bubble. Uh, he died young. He died in 1966, actually. So he didn't. Uh, you know his he probably would have kept writing for quite a while, but uh, it's interesting that he decided to write science fiction with that sort of career under his belt because he wrote a lot of nonfiction. Uh, he translated a lot of Chinese texts as well. That was something else he was uh, 
he was known for. Um, but um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's just interesting that he that he delved into uh, science fiction. Um, he uh, and, we've oh it's, go sorry um, uh, go go on. No, go ahead. Okay, uh, I I just want to say like I I had not heard of this before you you suggested we read it and um, uh, this along with Hyperion and with both I feel like why hadn't I heard of this yeah <laughs> um, and it's not like like I, I I've they've come up like I've I've since lo- looked both up and and um, they 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 get mentioned a lot than I just hadn't noticed but uh, I, I think this and, and Hyperion should be up there with Dune in, in terms of the mm-hmm. you know weird sci-fi stuff. <laughs> yeah, well, and and I, I think this has been what it, I think this is sort of like I don't want to say put him quite on the same level, but it's similar to how with Lord Dunsany for fantasy, like a lot of people hadn't heard of him, and he's sort of bloomed l- lately. But uh, for a long time, he was a very obscure writer, but he influenced all these other fantasy writers. And I think Cordwainer Smith is similar with science fiction. I think he ha- probably had a big influence. Uh, you mentioned Dune. I actually think this was probably an influence on Dune. Um, but I'll, um, uh, we'll get to that in a minute. Oh, um, yeah, I, I, I wanted to say it's... I'm not the, the first to notice this. The, it, it appears in some reviews, but uh, the movie Jupiter Ascending, which I actually just rewatched recently, um, uh, which I think is a very underrated movie. It's by the Wachowski sisters. It's a like an original uh, space opera setting, but very clearly influenced by this in, in retrospect. Yeah. I, th- I think so, yeah. I think that was probably... Uh, the Wachowskis have read a lot of... They're, they're like James Cameron, where they've read a lot of science fiction and they've synthesized it into their own work. Not um, to say that it's a rip-off, just that no, no, it clearly has some influences. Yeah, yeah. It's, you can see the, 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 the links. They get more and more obvious. Um, well, so... Okay, so let's, uh, let's actually talk about that a little bit uh, in terms of... Uh, like I say, there was... Um, we've talked a bit on the show. We've gotten into sort of this, this arc of science fiction and how tastes and formats of science fiction changed over the years, over the centuries even. Um, and of course the famous John W. Campbell era, uh, sort of t- uh, tied to the 40s and 50s, uh, where he was, you know, he he w- Campbell was really interested. We're, we're going to do a show about Campbell uh, specifically in a couple of, uh, in a couple episodes, so we'll get to that. But um, he, um, uh, you know, he was, for all intents and purposes, hard sci-fi, but he was also just interested in science fiction to specifically explore ideas in a very serious way uh you know i think right before that it had been a bit leaning harder on the pulpy adventure stuff and before that there'd been a bit more of a satirical edge to everything it it explored ideas but in kind of a in kind of a oh aren't we being silly uh way um and he wanted it to he you know his the stuff he encouraged was often kind of almost essay in essay form and he thought he could link it to like science and technology and engineering um, and as a as a vehicle to explore those kind of ideas, um, and uh, but of course, famously, a lot of that stuff wasn't terribly well written. Um, it, you know, especially uh, Robert Heinlein is is very his stuff is very much like here's an idea and here's an idea and here's an idea and I'm developing this world. Okay, bye. Like he, it's it's almost a series of anecdotes. Asimov has a bit of the same vibe. Those were two of his biggest writers, right? Um, so famously, there's a pushback sort of when you get to the mid '60s. Um, of like science fiction being considered more as a literary stuff, which really took off with uh, Dangerous Visions. That was kind of the the uh, the the centerpiece for that. Um, considered more as you know the right the the like working on the style and the imagery and the ideas. Like it's a bit more psychedelic. It's a bit more emotional. Um, and um, I, I, I'd also maybe say Star Trek, because a lot of the same people who wrote for Dangerous Visions wrote for Star Trek, as I've mentioned before. Uh, but of course, that didn't come out of nowhere. It didn't just explode onto the scene out of the blue. Um, and there were antecedents uh, in the 50s, especially. Uh, so we've talked about uh, Alfred Bester, for instance. He has a lot of the new wave vibe. Uh, wouldn't you say so, Phil? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And um, uh, uh, also... Um, I mean, again, Dune uh, has uh, a lot of that. Uh, Ballard, uh, who wrote, uh, we talked about High Rise, but um, his earlier '50s sci-fi stuff has that same, uh, like it, it's it's much more about tone and, and literary writing than it is like big science fiction ideas. Uh, uh, as a 
British guy. Uh, Arthur C. Clarke, when we had Andrew Hickey on the show, we kind of talked about that tension in, within his own work. Uh, for uh, you know, because he wanted to be a hard sci-fi Campbellian, but he probably had a bit more of a uh, a, a literary style to him. And uh, yeah, I would say Cordwainer Smith is part of that tradition as well. His stuff has very um, like he just embraces the absolutely weird, psychedelic, strange ideas uh, of sci-fi. And this is uh, the '50s and the early '60s. I think most of his stuff was written. Um, and um, like so, it was it was before what we would call the new wave. But it's uh, you know he'll he'll embrace just very strange ideas. There's an one of his stories which is briefly mentioned in, uh, in Australia. Um, he talks about the pinlighters. Uh, at one during there there are several cycles of uh, of uh, space travel in this universe in the instrumentality universe in which um, uh, people traveling between the stars have di- there are different things that have to be conquered uh and one of them is you know, there's always some kind of almost lovecraftian force encountered in traveling through space and they deal with it in different ways uh one of them is uh they they start you know they find a faster engine but then they discover they've kind of called attention from these semi-sentient multi-dimensional entities that then attack ships and they need to fight them off so it's very for this period of space travel it's very dangerous to travel and so they get these guys called pinlighters uh who can sort of supercharge their uh awareness and have you know super speed super reaction speed but even they aren't fast enough to stop these things before they they destroy uh ships and uh, so they work with cats and cats have even more hyper focus and can like act within millionths of a second when they when they're on the, the drugs and wired up the way they're supposed to be. And the humans kind of guide the cats. And apparently, Cordwainer Smith was like he loved cats, and this is all like written as a, <laughs> written as a tribute to his cat. Yeah, and then yeah, exactly. In Australia, there's more love for cats. You know, um, <laughs> it's kind of a proto furry novel, as we're going to possibly get into. Um, but so that's like it's just a weird story about you know a boy and his cat like when it comes down to it, it's like a boy and his dog but it's a boy and his cat but they've got to you know fight off multi-dimensional Lovecraftian entities and equally weird stuff this novel uh, uh, has just lots of strange ideas like the fact that a, a, a colony of uh, Australians become kind of the economic centerpiece of the universe and um that there's a, a group of under people. Animals are kind of mutated into uh, almost human entities that then um, uh, are, provide the labor in this world. Um, they're slaves. They're slaves, yeah. And that is that is a big focus of, especially the second half of this novel. Did you get to read The uh, the Dead Lady of Clowntown? No. Yeah, there's another short story um, that he wrote uh, that was sort of... I'm not sure if it was before this or it was written as a prequel, the same as Ballad as Lost Simel, but um, it's it tells the story of how the under people kind of awoke and started the rebellion, like uh, several generations before uh, everything. I think he must have written it after because it sort of references like foreshadows events, like uh, Jesticost, Lord Jesticost, who's one of the important characters in this novel, uh, and is crucial in fighting for the under people's liberation his great 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 etc grandmother uh encountered the under people and through sort of a weird fluke because she was designed to be a psychologist but they didn't need psychology at that point in history because everything was perfect humans were perfectly calibrated um and then she discovered the under people and realized that they were being mistreated and that they that's the, the slavery that they had were was wrong and so she sort of connected with them and started a revolution basically um, that's the the dead lady of Clowntown. Um, anyway, oh, uh, uh, yeah, uh, this is an aside, and you you can cut it out if you want. But uh, no. uh, on the uh, different methods of time uh, uh, space travel, um, there's something I forgot to mention in in the previous episode on um, uh, uh, stainless steel rat. The last book had um, a mention that before they had uh, FTL drives, they got around with something called a bloat drive, which extends you. Uh, infinitely, but only in like w- one direction, so it just stretches you out and then um, sort of snaps you snaps like a band aid, <laughs> uh, like a like a um, like a rubber band 
tactile, mm. so you snap back to the other side. <laughs> yeah, um, that's almost what looks like when the Enterprise goes to warp speed, you know? <laughs> yeah, but, uh, but, yeah, but it literally stretches the ship out to, to, you know, to that length and then snaps it back to the other side. <laughs> and yet you have to sort of calibrate with, like, um, to, to get into the right direction. Yet you have to do it a few times to get to where you're going because it's not exact. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's it's he he a, a lot of the short stories in this instrumentality universe are about um like how weird space travel is, how there's all these weird <laughs> ways of going faster than light that that uh you know that people uh struggle with until they apparently land on something that's fairly straightforward, although even in Australia there's there's some weird stuff like uh Yeah, it being, says uh every like 30th jump basically doesn't work. Right. So yeah. everything that you know has to be transported is like insured up to the up to the up to your neck, and you know costs mm-hmm. a lot of money to get it at certain distances. Yeah, yeah, and that's still safer than how he portrays like the earlier space travel, like I say, with the pin lighters and uh, um, in the story called the Game of Rat and Dragon, by the way. Um, and um, yeah, the uh, the yeah, like the the he he the first story he published uh, is called Scanners Live in Vain. Uh, and it's about how like there are telepathic telepathy features in uh, to the story, and there's a guy uh, named Vomacht who's apparently the ancestor of one of the characters in this book. Um, uh, but he, uh, it's about how like they they have to like cut off all their bodily functions from their brain basically, and just be detached brains when they're when they're traveling, and even do that a lot of the time when they're just at rest. Uh, and and he taught, and it sort of. Uh, like one of the themes of the story is that they become like these purely rational brains, but then like kind of monstrous because they don't care about humanity anymore. And when they find a way of like doing it without the scanners, the scanners are like, well, we should have a coup and destroy all the non-telepathic humans and take over. And everyone's like, yes, that is logical. And one scanner who didn't have his, like he, he, for various reasons, he didn't have his, uh, his full, uh, uh, um, his brain completely cut off from his physical processes at the time and he's trying to be like this is terrible it's monstrous we gotta i don't i want i need to stop these people right um so like that kind of stuff that 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 uh that's always happening and that you can see that kind of laying the groundwork for for telepathy which is a big part of uh of this story but it's actually funny you mentioned the stainless steel rat because that also has a bit of a uh it's a bit of a reference to um like this whole like oh we'll engineer a perfect society and everything will be great right yeah that was that was also a story about oh it's a perfect society and this one guy doesn't fit in um and here we also have here it's maybe not quite as negative but it still feels like rye would would you say that's true like i don't feel like he's endorsing the idea of this perfect regimented society would I you mean, say that i i would hope not it's full of slaves and stuff but yeah uh, yeah yeah um I, again like he was friends with the warlords and worked for the cia so who knows but uh yeah well uh, I, mean, I, I didn't get this sense that he was pro you know no and i mean <laughs> that kind stuff. of as we've said in other episodes that kind of thing always feels like it's meta commenting on like communism kind of and like the idea of these autumn perfect automated societies and the, you know the US and the West would seen as standing for individualism and freedom and that kind of thing so like that kind of thing tended to be portrayed a little more negatively like maybe before World War II you could see that uh, sometimes framed as a positive thing but here it kind of seems like and I mean not to, not which is not to say you didn't have like the foundation which is about how you know society's going to be carefully ordered and everything but the foundation books are ultimately about how that doesn't really work as well right so i mean it's always it's always complicated it's always been complicated by its writers it's never just as straightforward as it would be great if we all had punch cards for brains and in this world it's it's the idea that there was this sort of almost utopian if you want to call it that world where everyone was very well behaved like everyone died at a everyone lived 400 years and then was put to death because you got exactly 400 years of life uh you know everything was perfect and it was bad and it was causing stagnation in the culture so the instrumentality which has been the ruling force of mankind for thousands of years at this point um decides we've got to reintroduce like 
hatred actually and like disease and and uh, conflict and like religions are are reintroduced and culture and cultural differences are reintroduced having been wiped out supposedly before that again you see you have the monoculture idea right yeah and they um they go back into the into the records to find out about various cultures and just assign them to people um now that i think about it it's sort of like the uh um uh, napoleon of notting hill <laughs> Yep, just yep. randomly assigning people uh, identities only in this case they actually take to them but yeah um, right and yep. it mentions like all the um i think they said chinese uh uh chineseians like, re- they always yeah, say but yeah the, the records of of actual chinese culture before space travel has have don't exist anymore for whatever reason so they couldn't actually um re uh, create that particular culture <laughs> Yeah, well, he he frames it as the Chinese like robbed their own graves a lot in a, at some point in a future timeline, and as a result, uh, they don't um, th- they don't they didn't leave a lot of artifacts and and not information that could be used as opposed to uh, I forget which culture they say was oh Ma- it was French culture was well preserved in Mali because they they put they stored a museum of French culture in French speaking Mali inside a mountain before a. a implicitly atomic war that kind of wiped out human civilization for a long time um and uh so the french culture they were able to recreate quite well you know that kind of thing um but yeah like the instrumentality is very much a the idea of this overmind that controls human the de- human destiny as a culture um apparently it grows I, I this isn't really mentioned in any of the stories i read there's a b- bunch of them of course that i didn't read but Apparently, the idea is there's a nuclear war, or, or catastrophic wars at least, on Earth. Um, the instrumentality arises as sort of this uh, warrior class for a, a rise of a, you know, a kind of nasty sounding... It sounds a bit like the eugenics wars on Star Trek, actually, uh, because they call themselves the perfect ones. And they have this sort of band of enforcers, and they basically say, well, we should be running things, and they take over. And then it becomes, we're going to guide humanity back to civilization, and they do. They take them out into the stars, and as I say, everything sort of run perfectly and flawlessly for a long time, supposedly, in the sense that everything is, you know, metronomic and perfect, and and humans are sort of bred to think certain ways, and there's not a lot of freedom, basically. Um, uh, It's more complicated than that. Like, there's periods where you know there's a period of like decadence that leads to the expansion of space that's written about in a couple of stories but ultimately it becomes like you know oh we've 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 dehumanized everything so this is a period called the rediscovery of man where they're rediscovering again he frames it as all the some some bad stuff like that's kind of what he emphasizes but it's clear that humans are like finding their individuality and their their humanity again by doing this stuff basically yeah and there's also some sort of play acting like uh, you go to a restaurant and uh at the end the waiter will ask for a bill and people for you know they don't use money so they just they they haven't used money up to this point so they have to remember to to pick up some money from like a tray outside <laughs> and hand yeah. it to the waiter like it's all just uh, uh, performance <laughs> yeah literally it's too good we got to reintroduce cal- capitalism you know um well and- no they i mean there is there is a uh like galactic commerce and stuff which is actually very important uh, right to, to the plot of the thing but earthlings uh, generally are are quite rich because of various reasons right and Australians are very rich do you want to do you want to get into that whole thing about the Australians and their yeah uh, I mean you you covered uh, some of it in the in the opening um they uh are were a uh, a farming um culture that that came from old Australia on earth which doesn't exist anymore um um and uh they still have the queen but like as a figurehead but yeah, and you know, it's explicitly Queen Elizabeth II too. Yeah, like. <laughs> and that, but some people still think she's out there somewhere, like right. will return. Like, but mostly mm. it's just like a formality that you know, the Queen is the head of our government. Uh, right. They they still speak English apparently, mm-hmm. or at least a, a form of it. Yeah, is, I mean they, they call uh, yeah when they no. talk. Yeah, well, they call it English with an I, but yes, yeah. it's clear, like, that's supposed to be the closest to our language we'd hear at this point, you know, thousands of years in the future. 
Yeah, uh, though uh, most though most of them are uh, the vast majority are, are, are psychic and, and can read minds and and speak telepathically. So usually people don't speak uh, mm-hmm. out loud um, and just communicate psychically. The main character of the story actually. Um, is mostly uh, psychically mute and deaf, except for certain random times when he can hear everything mm. and um, can transmit like a weapon. Um, but it's not a, it fully under his control. Um, anyway, so... Uh, and they were on a planet called Paradise 4 at one point that they escaped from. That was apparently really bad. Yeah, I think it's actually Paradise 6. But Okay, yeah, something like... Sorry, yeah. I, yeah. My mind switched the where the eye was. It's Roman numerals, yeah. so um, yeah. And um, uh, they eventually uh, uh, landed on uh, Old North Aus- Australia or Australia, uh, which is the name of their new planet. Um, we, Australia actually means like the Austral is south, so that's I don't yeah. know New it, South it kept, North North yes. South. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, their their sheep started getting diseases, um, and but it was discovered that the diseases actually created uh, immortality serum, basically. Yeah, the and, um, uh, Santa Clara ma- drug, it's called. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or strewn, and this made them incredibly wealthy, like abs- like. Uh, but they're they're still want to cling to their farming culture and their 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 humble, you know. Um, salt of the earth uh, thing, you know, because they're very obsessed with tradition over everything. And um, so they have tariffs uh, that all outside uh, products are, uh, what was the number? It's like 20 million. 20 million, million percent, yeah. Increase. So, <laughs> yeah. So, like, so, yeah. Uh, like, so the idea is they have all this money that they kind of can't spend or they could spend off world but if you go off world you can't it's very hard to come back like you technically can but they they kind of you're semi-exiled if you leave north australia so you can live on north australia and be this like simple farmer who just gets enough to get by even though you're supposedly one of the richest people in the in the galaxy or you could leave and enjoy it but you can never come home again and you're you're literally going to be like a farming rube who doesn't really understand the ways of the galaxy, as we see in this story. That's what the main character... Rod- um, Ronald Arnold... Uh, sorry, Roderick Frederick Ronald Arnold William MacArthur McBann, which I like because <laughs> it flows off the title. But uh, And yeah, it, you keep the same name. The male line heirs keep the same name for generations. So he's the 151st first of his line. Um, and yeah, he's... But like, and it's funny, so it's like this tension between him as this heroic and actually fairly smart guy but he's also like a farmer a rube farmer who's never literally never been off the farm before uh but he corners the market anyway that's <laughs> we'll get into that but he corners the uh the galaxy's economy basically and as i said at the beginning buys earth um which he's able to do because his his ancestors uh had a special computer that they imported again with all the money that they they made from uh, farming these sheep uh this the strewn um the strewn is the disease right like that's that they call it the santa clara drug but they also say strewn at one point yeah oh yeah it's strewn is the name of the drug that they produce from the yeah okay yeah all right so that's what it is anyway um so yeah he's got like it's like again it's very weird he's got an entire temple that was built on another planet uh you know generations ago that's invisible to anyone who can't see in the infrared spectrum that was designed to be a certain way uh and uh, uh like yeah it was uh um built by a a race of i think non-human i think they're they're like the only non-earth related no they are supposed to be human like okay. a human has has humans have deviated into all these like subspecies by this point okay um, i for some reason i thought they were uh pre like a pre-human species but i yeah, there's that scene near the climax where he sees all these different like types of humans, and and there's also like the uh, the yeah, Amazonian, yeah, yeah, the rain planet, yeah, who has but like I flaps of skin these, and is poisonous and things like yeah, that. And for some tiny reason, people I, apparently. 
I thought these were a- another race, but yeah. uh, I-, I could have been mistaken there. Well, they, um, they do act like benevolent aliens in the story, so it's easy to make that mistake. Like, yeah. they come to other worlds and say, we will give you our wisdom, which is usually architectural, apparently. Yeah, they're, they're an architectural-based species, and uh, this one king asked for um, a, uh, a palace uh, designed after a specific palace in history, except it's invisible to everybody, but people in his in his specific family line mm. so his his um descendants will be able to see it and nobody else can and but uh, r- but it's because the descendants are able to see in infrared which is something they do to them yeah so, it, they, they stick stuff in his eyes and and that causes and it apparently will pass on for generations in his family mm-hmm. which then does. yeah which then like obviously so rod can see it because he just has infrared goggles so it's still you know it doesn't really become that unique to them but anyway it's 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 he's got all this like he's it's just funny because all the the australians are sitting on these huge treasures and weird stuff that they just they barely even understand in some ways but it's like the rarest things in the galaxy including a computer that can basically you know uh sabotage the stock market for him <laughs> for all intents yeah. and purposes which is uh, but yeah and the north like north australia is not a good planet to live on <laughs> yeah it's it's um i mean the the gray skies uh completely uh it's extremely dry um i mean it's not a desert planet but it's it's very dry like their their uh rivers they have to enclose in like um um uh, tents over top of the rivers to keep them from evaporating. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, it, it's a hard life that they're intentionally doing um, because right. this is their culture. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and it, you know, they kill off uh, any children who don't uh, come up to standards. A very eugenics y, yeah. well, straight up eugenics. Um, and Rod is, um, because of his, his disability, not being able to. Um, uh, speak and hear, <laughs> spelled, yeah, spelled weirdly, and yeah. apparently is supposed to sound like a question when you say it out loud. Yeah, it's S P I E K. And is, H I E and H I E R for hear. yeah, speaking yeah. and hearing with your mind is yeah. Um, so he he can't uh, do that at least not reliably, and um, uh, as a result he's. But because he's, you know, part of a, a rich, a particularly rich old family, um, he's given the option three times to take the test again and decide if, and they'll decide if he gets to live or not. So he's regressed to, to mental childhood three times already after living to. So he's 16, but he's actually about 60. Yeah. But also he's immortal because of the strewn, so he probably looks basically like a 16-year-old anyway. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah but, like, he's he's, like... He's actually lived for 60 years, but he only yeah. remembers <laughs> really 16 of it, though he can sort of retrieve memories from his other lives. Right. Um, yeah, it's uh, like a lot of cool ideas in this. <laughs> yeah, it's very weird. And yeah, it's funny because, and again, it's it's like, well, it's funny, we, we watched, we, when we read A Planet for Texans, this has some weird parallels with it it's the same thing of like the herd are these giant animals the sheep by the way when they get sick they apparently blow up to like the size of a house basically uh and there's and they can't walk or anything they just have to be looked after carefully to produce like mode yeah like you have to like like a riding mower over them yeah exactly and um and it's it's got the same thing of like cow like Again, as I said, by the time you get to the 50s, there's this very tongue-in-cheek level. It's a bit more of a sophisticated uh, approach to sci-fi, and I think it's. I think he's doing this here. He's he's less obviously winky than A Planet for Texans, uh, but it's that kind of celebration of, you know, cowboy culture, except, again, they're Australians rather than Americans, but it's written by an American, obviously, you know, winking at American sort of libertarian cowboy, I'm a free man who lives out on the range and I work with my hands kind of attitude. But it's this absurd, bizarre scenario, <laughs> right? Yeah, they, they don't have to be doing this. <laughs> right, yeah. And it's it's like, well, this per- this keeps us good, right? And as you say, they're also, like, at the same time, they're doing eugenics and all kinds of messed up stuff. And, and, and they- wiping out, like, most, like a good chunk of their own children 
mm-hmm. uh, because they they um, dis- you know decide that only so many people can live. Yeah. Uh, again, partially because of the immortality, and partially just because of how terrible the planet is. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 uh it's it's a very like and it, it, like it, there's something almost Kurt Vonnegut esque about this novel. Like again, Vonnegut tackles it in a bit more of a humorous and and like warm way. Like this is a bit it's a bit of a chilly book in some ways. Like it's everything is viewed from a bit of a detachment. Um, like Rod's a Rod's like a lovable protagonist basically, but but there is definitely sort of a you know watching everything through a microscope approach. But it's got that same absurdism that Vonnegut had of just uh, like just crazy stuff will happen in the margins and you know like kind of horrific stuff, but it's so absurd you have to laugh kind of thing. Yeah, um, and there's also stylistically now that you mentioned Vonnegut, there's a lot of that sort of telling part of the story before it happens um yeah if that makes sense like that no that i know what you mean a lot in, like it starts out just saying you know he he buys earth and then he he goes to earth and then comes back yeah it um, tells you everything that's going to basically happen in the first paragraph <laughs> roughly yeah and then yeah um uh, like vonnegut would do that where like uh say breakfast of champions keeps saying you know it's it's such and such time until the the big attack or right. whatever it was yeah right yeah and and i mean i wonder if that's an element of like chinese writing that he's that he's transpiring like I've, i think i've heard that that i may i could be completely wrong about this but i think i've heard about that in in like asian writings they often like to sort of give a summary early on of what the story is going to be about like that that's actually a, a technique that they use i mean I, it it happens in some west like romeo and juliet says what's going to happen at the beginning Mm, that's true yeah that's uh that's a that's not an uncommon thing i suppose um yeah it is very noticeable for a 20th century uh novel to just say what's how it's going to end at the very beginning yeah exactly it's how you write it's how you write essays anyway um so yeah the so then the big aspect and this was actually published uh originally as two novels i don't know if you knew that uh yeah uh yeah so they were called um i believe they were called the boy who bought old earth and the under people were the original names of the two novels yeah it was the planet buyer or also known as the boy who bought old earth which was 1964 uh and the under people which would have been released after he died interestingly enough uh 1968 and then they weren't put together as a novel as Australia until 1975 and um, he'd been dead for many years yeah he that was almost dead for almost a decade at that point um and like all of his short stories weren't really collected until 1993 from what i can tell uh so it was definitely yeah like he kind of was left languishing and again because of the shift of sci-fi to where it was i i almost worry that he like he got left behind because of exactly where he died you know like it was it was right before he could sort of manage the shift to be one of the dangerous visions type of the new wave people um but yeah anyway the second half of this um leads very heavily there's there's a prequel that's actually included with the book i have and that uh, as i've mentioned uh, there's uh, there's uh, some of the uh, there's another story called the dead lady of clown town that's like a prequel to this set a few generations before um and then it and it's something that's interesting that doesn't get mentioned that heavily in the first part the first book um which is uh the under people which then becomes a huge part of the book uh in the second um in the second book um, which is, as we've mentioned, yeah, so there, they, there is an under person like a snake soldier at one point in in the first half. Right. Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah. They get they do get but mentioned. It, it's not really like, and they mention that uh, the computers generally nowadays have animal parts in them, like mm. part animal brain or something. And he, his computer that uh, does all the weird tax, you know, weird uh, financial shenanigans is the last real computer on the on the planet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or, well. Like, a pure computer right but that's slightly different i think because that's um yeah um the, but this still is, like that they use animal mm-hmm. in, incorporate animals into their technology and that sort of thing yeah well it's yeah but there I, is I, an actual underperson as a soldier right yeah no that's right it does get mentioned well they're not allowed on Australia, which is actually why they don't get brought in that much but again the, the two prequel stories the ballad of lost Seamel and the and the um the dead lady of clown town uh, are both um uh, like very explicitly about the under people and how they're enslaved and the under people and and it's funny because it 
I think it's inspired by um, um, uh, oh, God's sake, uh, the H.G. Wells story, um, uh, the Island of Doctor oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Doctor Moreau, uh, because it's very much the same thing of like we're going to take animals and make them into people, which is literally what's happened. Like animals have become, it's a little vague, but they uh, apparently they're you can tell to look at them they're not human, but they're described as being almost human. Uh, cats, dogs, mice, snakes, birds, um, bears, an elephant at one point. Um, spiders. Spiders, yeah, which I don't know how that works. Um, and sometimes, in Dead Lady of Clowntown, they makes it sound like, yeah, you wouldn't, you wouldn't really, you'd barely be able to tell they were animals. But in this book, when he describes them, they do sound pretty, like, notably not human. Um, I, I think it depends, because some of them are bred to look more human, like Samel. Yeah. Um, is definitely, like, she's bred to be, like, the most attractive uh, um, for humans. Um, mm-hmm. Though she's still, like... Uh, did they describe her ears as pointy? I, I was imagining well, that. But they, her, her they, eyes are reflective dis- and that sort of thing. So Rod goes undercover as an underperson for a big chunk of the book. Because the thing is, when he buys Earth... Um, it, it's like oh that puts a target they, they they puts a target on your back they almost make it like you know uh, if i wanted to grumble a bit they kind of it feels like they buy into the well once you're rich and powerful man then you've got lots of troubles to deal with it's more trouble than it's worth it's better to be a simple guy out in the the boonies and so it's like he doesn't really enjoy his wealth for much of the book it's immediately like oh everyone's going to try and kill you now because you own earth and you have you're the richest man in the galaxy like it's like you can't buy someone to protect yourself from that apparently it's and, and literally it's like oh we're gonna throw you off in australia because you're too rich and all that kind of stuff um but he they're, so he goes attracting too much attention and all that and the australians yeah. are very isolationist so mm-hmm. well no, I, I mean sense i i do see the logic of like you just messed up the the galactic economy like of course we're not going to let any and you're nobody i'm well i mean again you're theoretically from one of the richest worlds in the the galaxy but in practice you're just a poor farm kid uh so they they don't want to like they don't want to have someone sort of swoop in and throw everything and of course earth is controlled by the instrumentality who control everything so i guess you know they don't want to they don't want to deal with that so i mean it does make sense but it is very much a sort of like oh rich people have it so hard man you don't even know the thieves guild which is apparently a thing and it's it's uh appears a few times and um yeah yeah there's a planet run by thieves entirely um and whose whose leader is called the uh, your audacity yes <laughs> which i thought was great um but uh they don't play a huge role in the story they just get mentioned as sort of commenting yeah, on the action a lot yeah I, 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 and at the end there's like a coda that that deals with them and they uh apparently dealt with the the situation by making honest deals and they're yeah. really like taken aback by that <laughs> <laughs> yeah they end up getting like the whole it's the idea that this this transformation of society is forcing them to become legitimate businessmen that michael michael corleone is is there at the head of the thieves guild going we're legitimate but, business but they're really now. upset about it but they don't like it yeah exactly they're angry one of them is like i'm too old to become an honest man i want to go back to being a thief yeah um but anyway, so he goes undercover as a um, as an underperson, and uh, they do say that he has pointy ears and uh, he has I think whiskers. They, yeah, whiskers. I think they mentioned a tail. Um, anyway, so we can imply that that's what Seamel um, looks like. Well, this, I, I always assumed Seamel was like more human than the others because of how she was hmm. bred, like the purpose she was bred for. Right. Um, but uh, maybe it's again we're getting into furry territory here too, so we're almost going like yeah, maybe they she's just not like... covered in fur. That's explicit. Yeah, yeah. She, she has red she hair. She has uh, red hair that's extremely soft, uh, like a cat's. Yeah. Um, but uh, she's like got bare skin for for most of it. Uh, her job. She's basically a geisha, and I think they they uh, yes. make that comparison. It's at one point her her official title is girly girl, and right. she's sort of a um designed yeah. basically to um um entice men uh not sleep with them but just sort of um uh be a, a hostess and yeah um, she's a consort yeah yeah and and also like get secrets out of them and stuff but mm-hmm. uh um she she explicitly can't sleep with with anybody because that's a crime right uh, it'll they- get um 
it'll get this underperson executed automatically and the human will probably have to uh have um, some sort of you know brainwashing right yeah the, yeah people's br- people get their memories wiped on, on at the drop of a hat in this world even though even if they're quote real people with their uh you know with rights and everything under people can be just like a, a person could just kill an under person for looking at him wrong there's very there's very little uh, there's no rights it, at worst somebody might be like hey that was my property you know um yeah. it's very much slavery um and and um and like if you're rich s- enough you can pay you can pay for the you know any damage Fine, you do yeah. so you can just yeah right yeah and i mean that is what it's about because there's been a sort of secret rebellion uh, brewing for the under among the under people um in um the this by the way c-mel her name is c-mel with a c apostrophe because she's f- derived from a cat so like a like there's a character in a uh, clown town called d joan because uh, she's a dog she's a puppy girl um and or you know the, there's an uh, uh e-, e telly kelly is sort of the leader of the 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 under people revolution and i think that's e for eagle he's definitely a bird of some kind yeah um and uh, there's rat people at one point. Anyway, and snake people, as mentioned. And, and a, uh, a bull people. Yeah, bull, a bull. Yeah. And um, um, so, yeah, it's about how those people free themselves. And it's it's almost like, it's funny because Smith kind of writes it in almost a way of like, well, you know there's going to be, these people are going to free themselves. Like, it, it, there's not, it's almost not even suspenseful. It's like, okay, how do we get there? How do we get to the re- rebellion and the revolution? Well, E. Telly Kelly has been running a secret uh, rebellion under the earth for a long time. It turns out uh, he was part of a genetic experiment to, like, replicate the... We, we talked about those angelic alien-like humans who build architecture. Apparently they wanted to try and replicate that with eagle DNA. And, oh, okay. Uh, I missed that. All right. Yeah. And, and that he was a, he was a failure. They, they said they tried to dispose of him, but he lived... Um, and grew and became the the leader of a rebellion, which is kind of kind of neat. And um, and it's so one of the things that that that's eventually revealed. And they've been waiting for Rod to come to them. And there's a there's a whole religion that they've got brewing in their in their minds of like how they're going to be you know liberatory philosophy. Religion is kind of eradicated everywhere else, although it's slowly starting to creep back as part of the rediscovery of mankind. But the under people have a religion, and one of them is you know it's messianic. It's oh they'll somebody will come and free us all and save us all eventually um and um and they think it's rod but it turns out not to be yeah except it well i mean i think the point is like it kind of is rod but it's not in any way they would have predicted or expected it to be which is why telly kelly is constantly saying no it's not rod don't get your hopes that's not rod like he's kind of discouraging the religious fervor about it but he kind of is the one who ends up saving them uh like basically what we eventually learn is that the under people they're bred to serve mankind and because they've been doing all this work and humans have been kind of like getting lax and slow and sloppy because all the work is done by the under people the under people are starting more more and more they're starting to actually manage the way human society runs uh and they're doing it to benefit humanity because they like humans because they're again they're bred to serve humans um yeah and and, 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 um like samel mentioned like even before they were under people cats love humans right uh, at least allegedly uh, i don't yeah. know i, I think no, my they cat do. likes me i, know. I don't know yeah, they do i'm just joking they just uh, yeah the, the joke that they don't love humans at all but they're they're just independent but yeah they're like shaping human like it's become the thing of like we do everything so we're it's uh, i mean it's funny that is actually almost a marxist idea of like well the workers end up doing everything and then they end up just taking charge because the the people on top just get completely soft and useless and don't contribute anything anymore um but in this case they want it they're they're actually saying yeah we want to save humans too and that's partly like for their benefit that we're ending slavery too because it's bad for them too um and um and and in fact rod kind of calls them on that it's like oh come on don't you care about yourselves and it's like yeah we do but our our interests align basically um so that's kind of interesting. So they basically end up convincing Rod at the end of the day to uh, basically put all his money into a foundation, uh, which they can use to sort of further shape society and that will eventually lead to um, the under people. They don't like 
free all the under people overnight. That's, you know, like, that's kind of where you think it's heading. And then E. Telly Kelly says, you know, no, we're not, we've got long time to go before we're living as equals together. But now we can actually start the process of, like, changing people's minds about about this stuff, basically. Um so it's kind of it's interesting in that regard there's no dramatic action climax to this story it's all just like you know he throwing ideas around basically and 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 again it's almost like we're talking about this guy uh working for uh you know capitalist propaganda it does end up being like capitalism will eventually save things but the free market <laughs> will eventually make everything better you could read it that way i'm sorry i'm, I'm being a bit tongue-in-cheek here yeah but, um, i mean like it's about the slow processes of history. Yeah, I- incrementalism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um but also the idea that like the you know the like it there's a there's a logic to that. It's like if you if you give all the work to these people they're the they won't be the underclass forever because they'll be the ones who do everything and <laughs> the other you know the other people don't know what they're doing. I mean, that's kind of uh, interesting. Another sort of link with uh, Hyperion though in that case the the machines were secretly in charge all along but the, the right. idea of like serving humanity but actually just repurposing humanity for their own ends right the it's the, going back to the wachowskis actually that is that's kind of the machines in the matrix they're more malevolent yeah. but it's like they're uh, like uh, that's actually something i always say about the matrix that's just actually clever which is if you look at it the machines are malevolent they're controlling everything but they are trying to do it ultimately in a way they think is helping humanity because that's what they were built to do right they're yeah, just doing it in for, a way except for some outliers like smith who hate humans uh, yeah, yeah like most of them seem to not hate humans yeah like they're literally like we built a, a we built a, a a paradise where everyone would be happy it just didn't work so we had to reset our expectations but they didn't start from the idea of we're going to torment humans if you've seen the fourth movie that they released recently they actually get into the idea of like okay what if there was a malevolent machine like that's actually where it starts going in an an interesting direction um but yeah like uh, that is always an interesting idea to me and and again we we mentioned the wachowskis and and uh like the idea of buying earth or someone random finding out that they they own earth is and plus of course all the animal inspired people uh, are both in jupiter ascending so it's hard not to believe they didn't uh uh know this story and weren't inspired by it by that degree um, yeah also this is uh this is the third uh one we've done this season so far with um a major plot point being immortality serum um mm. Because yeah. uh, I mean, it, it it appears in Hyperion as the uh, Pulson treatments, right? Um, and uh, it's the geriatric treatments in stainless steel radar are a thing over several books, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's definitely an idea. Everyone has just assumed that we're all going to live basically forever. Though <laughs> I mean, in all in all in all these cases, it's actually not forever because um, they right. all have their limits. The Pulson treatments start turning you blue after a while. Yeah, um, right and uh geriatric treatments only work for so long and uh even in this case uh i i think it said it basically caps off at a thousand and after that things go start going south yeah well and and there's also like the fact that people want to uh like there's someone controlling it and they're like well if everyone lives forever <laughs> things <laughs> you know like oh, yeah. that'll On mess Earth, up everyone yeah. but i think yeah. they said like the upper limit is about a thousand yeah if i recall correctly yeah yeah so it's uh it's like there's a level of control of like okay we have to end your life eventually you can't just live forever or it'll mess up society basically though again uh jupiter ascending has the at least the upper classes living for like millions mm-hmm. of years right right yeah exactly so it's uh or at least hundreds of thousands of years i think yeah oh yeah yeah i don't think they yeah. went to millions but uh well, but and, like, given that human life is evolved on Earth yeah, as fair, part yeah. of a, as part of a this this product product uh, that they develop, it's uh, yeah. I exactly. guess spoilers for Jupiter Ascending. Watch <laughs> it; it's a fun movie. It's a good movie. I think. I think a lot. I think it's a cult enough movie. A lot of people have seen probably. Crikey! We have to go toss some shrimp on the space Bobby. So time to <laughs> wrap don't up. Say that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, sorry. I can't say I can't say space Barbie. What is they that offensive? They don't say shrimp on the Barbie. That's not a thing they say. I, oh, oh, I I know. I know. This is cartoon <laughs> Australians again. Douglas got tied to, had to explain to me the, about uh, the things Australians do not in fact say. Anyway, 
Um, we've been Adam Prosser, a simple ranch hand who stumbled into good fortune, and Philip Rice, who I think was mutated from some kind of kangaroo. Uh, our oh, producer, like tank girl. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> our producer and engineer is Alex Ross, who controls the secret rebellion from his underground lair, and the theme song was composed on telepathic didgeridoo by Jack Furick. Uh, just a reminder, we both have a Patreon, which helps pay for hosting costs and prevents the dingoes from eating our babies. Uh, subscribe to either of us, and you can listen to this podcast early every time, as well as getting bonus material, cut footage, and illustrations and comics, among other things. We promise the import taxes are less than 20 million percent. Uh, just go to Patreon and search for Philip Rice, one L, or Adam Prosser, two S's, or what-mad-universe.pinecast.co for the links. You can also follow us on Twitter at WMU Podcast or Prankster36 for me or Spear Hafok A for Philip. Oh, uh, and I, I guess I also, I also have a blue sky, just right. Spear Hafok without the A. Yes, and I'm Prankster36.bsky.social. I guess you're Spear Hafok.bsky.social as well. Yeah. Yeah. Now, thank, thank, thanks, uh, Elong. We, uh, we can't. <laughs> We may not have Twitter for much longer. Oh, as far as X. We know. Right, yeah. it's X now. Oh, X, excuse me. I can't call it Twitter anymore. It's Go to X at Twitter.com. What? <laughs> I, okay. Anyway. Um, so until next time, goodbye, mates. <laughs> <laughs>